So the son of God, son of man, we are looking at part two of the origin story of Christ. Where did Christ come from? What is the genealogy of Christ is what we'll look at today. Now, I know as I start talking about genealogy, some of you probably immediately got really nervous, like, what are we going to do in the genealogy? This is sort of like reading a phone book, which is, for those of you who are under a certain age, they used to pass out these books, and they were, they were actually books, and they have phone numbers in them, and you could look up phone numbers in that. Um, it was pretty amazing. But... I know I actually mentioned phone book in one of my classes not that long ago, and a girl actually raised her hand and said, what is a phone book? Um, we don't use those anymore, and I, I knew it was coming at some point. So phone books, and we could read a list of names, and so if you just glance down in your Bible at Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23, and then just kind of let your eye just kind of glaze through and wander down to verse 38, there's a list of names, about 42 names here, actually. It's a long list of names, and they're unfamiliar, and in fact, Luke's story is sort of obscure. There's only a handful of names in here that we know anything about from the Old Testament, And even the ones that we know something about, there's only a handful still that we know much about. So why do we have this genealogy? I know for most of you, I think once we get past maybe the second generation, we probably could not name our ancestors, our grandparents perhaps. I think most people know their grandparents. I think many would know their great-grands. My guess is, if we did this by show of hands here this morning, only a handful would move past great-grandparents into great-great-grandparents. There may be a few here and there. Maybe some of you are really into that genealogy. You've done the 23andMe sort of thing to figure out your history and where you came from. But here's the thing about those types of studies and those types of things. It's typically only really interesting if it's about you. Am I right? Right? If you just hang out at your friend's house for dinner this Tuesday night and you have salad and grilled chicken, and they say, okay, well, we're glad you're here. I have some books, and this is all about my family history. It's just thrilling dinner conversation, right? Nobody cares. Nobody cares where you came from. It might be mildly interesting if there's a significant historical figure here or there, or there's some anecdote or story, but for the most part, it doesn't really matter to me where you came from, unless it's us, and then we all of a sudden find it kind of interesting. If anybody's ever been to a war memorial, I'm sure many of you have been to a war memorial at some point, what's the first thing that you did? you probably went to find a name that was your name or maybe a maiden name or maybe a family name. It tends to be what we do. Our own identity is fascinating to us, but the story of others, it typically doesn't really grab us all that much. So what do we do with a story like this, with this genealogy? I wanna unpack this in three different ways this morning. I'm going to ask two questions, and then we're going to talk about some implications from the genealogy. I want to ask, why is there a genealogy here? Why is this particular genealogy here? And then, why does it matter? And in the last part, we're going to pick some names out of this list. We're not going to try to explore this entire list this morning. We would be here for a while. 
And we're going to look at some particular characters in this list and why they are so significant and important. So why a genealogy? Matthew's gospel starts with a genealogy. I get people oftentimes with this. We all know how the Bible starts. Most people at least are at least mildly familiar with the Bible. They know that it begins with the story of God in the beginning. Finish it. God created the heavens and the earth. Appreciate some of our kids. Adults are scared to talk in church, but thank you guys. Appreciate that support over there. The New Testament actually starts out with a book of the genealogy. Son of Abraham, son of David. Where did Christ come from? Genealogies are important, very important. So they serve an important role, and we're going to look at what that role would be. Why would we sit down this morning in the year 2023, read a bunch of ancient names that we can hardly pronounce? Why would we do this? I'm going to argue that there's two basic purposes, and you could certainly add to this list. It's not exhaustive, but just some things to keep in mind as we look into this genealogy a little bit more. One is God's character, and then next we could call Christ's credentials. God's character and Christ's credentials. God's character. This long list of names that we have here in Luke, and then if you combine it with the other list of genealogies, there's about 25 of them in the Bible. There's not one after we get to Christ. If you look at these genealogies, it serves to remind us that God is faithful, and as Brigham mentioned a moment ago, that God has acted in history, and that God is up to something. He established a nation named Israel. He preserves that nation. He promises a deliverer that would come through that nation, and then he specifies even through a specific line and tribe within that nation. Israel went through some really, really difficult seasons in her history. In our equipping hour, which meets at nine o'clock just before our service, we're looking at what's called the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And what we're doing is we're going from oldest to newest. And so we're looking at the history of Israel sort of as it's told by the minor prophets. Now, when we say minor prophet, it's not minor in message. Actually, most of those prophets really pack a punch as far as their message. They're minor just because they're shorter books. And so what we're doing is just taking one week and overviewing the history of Israel through that particular, the eyes of that particular prophet. And what we see is that it was really bad times, oftentimes, for Israel. It was, as we might say, it was fourth and long a number of times in Israel's history. And it just didn't look real hopeful, or maybe to fit the season. You're down by four with three seconds on the clock right now. It didn't look good for Israel's history. And it looked sometimes like there was no way out. What's God going to do? And so what we have is the story of God preserving his people and then also preserving the messianic line. And the genealogies serve to do that. Next, we see that Christ's credentials for being the Messiah are fit through this genealogy and then also the one over in Matthew. And we'll talk about those in just a moment. Christ's credentials. The Messiah, when I say Messiah, I mean the promised one of the Old Testament, the anointed one, the one that was supposed to come and be the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. 
he was going to come and he couldn't be self-proclaimed. You couldn't just anoint yourself as the Messiah. This is probably, maybe, it's not hard for us to understand, but we don't necessarily think in these terms because in our world, in our culture, anybody basically can have any job, right? You don't have to come from a particular family in order to be in a particular office. Anyone could be the president of the United States. Not anyone, anyone, but there are a few rules. But there's no particular family. There's no lineage. It's not like a kingship that's handed down generation to generation. And so in Israel, the kingship was handed down generation to generation. And then also the priesthood was handed down generation to generation. You had to be a Levite in order to be a priest. And so Israel was very much, they thought in these terms. And so for one to claim to be the Messiah, as Jesus will later do, and we'll, I'm really looking forward to getting into that with you in about six weeks or so here, where Jesus stands and begins to read about the Messiah in the Old Testament and says, this is fulfilled in your day. Well, I can guarantee you they're all back at the library in Israel and they're searching out, could he be the one? Because he had to be from the right places, the right tribe. This is very important stuff that Luke's recording for us and also what Matthew records for us. So in the Old Testament, just a few things, and you could certainly expand this list as well. The Messiah had to, one, be a human. That's self-evident, but worth pointing out. Genesis 3.15, it was going to be the seed of the woman. And so you'll remember that in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation story that's given. And then immediately after that, we see the fall account, what's called the fall, which is when Adam and Eve sinned, they rebelled against God. And then in the midst of delivering a curse on the earth and on the serpent, in particular here, we're told that there's going to be enmity, strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And eventually, one day, the seed of the woman, the human, the male child, is going to win. And so from there forward, we're pulling this promise forward through thousands, literally thousands of years of history of God being faithful. And so I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again here because it's appropriate. Every time that you come to a genealogy in the Old Testament, after you read and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so, after you read that, just utter the little phrase in your mind, we're still waiting we're still waiting. It was all designed to get you to the Messiah. He's coming. One of my roommates in college, he was really trying to get, trying to get it together one semester. As often happens in college, you sometimes don't have it all together. It's a little hint for our high schoolers that are headed that direction. And he said, I'm going to get up early and I'm going to read my Bible. But oftentimes what he would do is he would get up early, he would go to breakfast, and he would come back to his room to read his Bible, and then he would sleep through his classes. That's kind of how it went. And so one morning, we were trying to make sure that he actually got back up, and he always blamed it on the cheese grits. I said, don't blame it. I don't think cheese grits is your real issue here, but one morning, he's in his bed, and he's reading his Bible, which is probably not the best place to be, and he asked me, he said, Alan, is it a sin to skip the begats? I said, no, I don't think it's a sin to skip the begats. And I think he had come to 1 Chronicles 9, 1 Chronicles 1, which has nine chapters 
of genealogy, nine chapters of names that are unfamiliar, one after another, after another, after another, after another. And it can almost be numbing to us, but these are very important. And just like somebody else's family history might not be something that you immediately grab onto, this is very important for, for understanding who the Messiah is and then eventually validating Jesus as the Messiah. So this promise gets pulled forward. A son, he has to be Jewish in order to be a king in particular. This is Moses' prophecy. When they go into the land, Moses wrote this some 400 years before they actually went into the land. He says, eventually you're going to want a king. And here's the thing. When you put a king over you, there's requirements for who the king could be. And he must be one of your fellow countrymen, a, a man, a Hebrew. The scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah. This is Genesis 49.10. And then we also see that this promise is pulled forward yet again in King David, a male descendant of King David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So Christ's credentials are answered in this genealogy, and then, of course, combining this with Matthew, and there's other things as well we could say about that. But this will do for now. The simple answer to the question, why do we have, why a genealogy? Well, it establishes God's faithfulness, and it also establishes that Christ is the credible, actual Messiah. Remember, Luke's purpose in writing, in Luke chapter 1, he tells us the purpose in writing. He's writing to an individual. We all get to sort of listen in and look over the shoulder of a guy named Theophilus. And he says, I want you to know, I want you to be know for certainty the things that you've been taught, particularly about Jesus as the Messiah. And so now here we are many years later, many generations later, looking over the shoulder of Theophilus, as it were, and we are also being confirmed that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. That's why he's writing. All right, so why a genealogy? Well, that was the easy part. Now we get to some fun stuff. Here's the big question that comes up when we look into a genealogy like this. Why do Luke and Matthew have different genealogies? Now, this may be a little bit of an exercise if you're interested in this type of thing. We're not going to go too deep. You won't need the scuba gear today, but we are going to put our heads down and snorkel a little bit, and let's just see what we can find. And maybe this will whet your appetite for some of you to go and do a little bit of your own poking and prodding and studying. I'd be glad to go a little bit deeper with anybody that wants to do that at some other time. Why this particular genealogy, and why do we have a difference between the way Luke and Matthew record these names? And they are very different, just to warn you, as you start comparing these, they are, in fact, very different. Here's just a sampling. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, it starts with Abraham, and then it ends with Jesus, Joseph, and then Jesus, as opposed to Luke's genealogy, which starts with Jesus, and then it works backwards, but it shoots past Abraham all the way to Adam. And so you get a little bit of a hint of a difference in purpose for their genealogies. Matthew focuses on the royal line. And so there's a lot of mention of kings, various kings that we know more about. Luke, we could say, focuses more on humanity. Many of these names are very obscure. We don't know anything about them. In fact, some of them we don't know anything really about. There's 77 names 
in Luke, or in Matthew, and then 42 names in Luke. So why the difference, and what's going on here? They're way different. What is happening? A few things. I'd be glad to send this to anyone that wants it, if you let me know after. Why do Luke and Jeannie, uh, and Matthew, why are they different? Let's talk a little bit about it. The lists are identical, basically from Abraham to David. That's roughly a 500-year or so period from Abraham to David. The lists are roughly identical. Luke traces the lineage through David's son, Nathan. Matthew traces through Solomon. And so they begin to diverge. So Abraham to David. Imagine a timeline with me here. Abraham to David, basically the same. They diverge at David. But then the list comes back together with two names, Zerubbabel and Shiltiel, and then they differ from there until they get to Joseph. Maybe this will help. We have Matthew, left column, Luke on the right column. We have Abraham to David. There's a number of names in between those. This is just showing the differences. David branches out. Matthew follows Solomon's line. Luke follows Nathan. They converge again at these two guys, Shiltiel and Zerubbabel, and then they branch back out Um, And we see that they both end up at Jesus. All right. Everybody got that? Good? Okay. You know, one of the things they say in preaching class is a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. So I'm, I'm trying to be very clear in how we lay this out without going into too much detail because it gets misty out there really fast. I understand. So... Let's dig into it a little bit deeper. So why are these things different? So that's just a sampling of the differences. And I have a number of charts, a number of different ways I was thinking about trying to show you all of this. And basically, there's just too many names. You're talking about 72 names on one list, or 77, 70, 42. You know, there's over, well over 100 names. And once you put that on a screen, it just you might as well just be looking at a sea of words that means nothing. So that won't really work for us. So that's the best we could do to show the lines similar, and then they diverge, and then they come back together, and then they diverge again. That's what you need to know. Hourglass, think that. All right, why is it that way? Here's some possible solutions that I want to show you. Possible solutions, number one, this could be paternal versus maternal. So this is actually the simplest solution. One is giving the account of Joseph, and the other is giving the account of Mary. Commonly thought, Matthew is giving the account of Joseph, and then Luke is giving the account of Mary. This argument has some benefits to it. It definitely has some benefits. Um, as you, uh, a, a few things. Um, one, look in verse 23. Luke 3, verse 23, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 35 years of age, being the son, do you notice the phrase there, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methot, and then it goes on to list all the names. The phrase I want to key in on here is, as was supposed. Now, why would Luke say something like, as was supposed? Well, he's told us why already, because of the virgin birth. Properly speaking, Jesus did not have a human biological father. 
He had a legal father, Joseph. He did not have a biological father in the same way that other humans do. And so I think what Luke is tipping us off to here is just reminding you that Jesus' origin is different from every other human that's ever lived. He's the preexistent one who entered into humanity. And Joseph happened to be married to Mary. So that's got a benefit to it. Genealogies were typically tracked paternally through the man. So that's why maybe Mary is not mentioned here. So perhaps he's telling Mary's story, but not mentioning that specifically. There's another issue that helps us here, that this explanation, the paternal versus maternal, if we understand Luke to be teaching the maternal view, it would be this. There was a guy who was a king way back when named Jeconiah. Now, you'll remember that David is promised the kingdom. I mentioned that just a moment ago. This is 2 Samuel 7.16. says this, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so David has an eternal promise of the kingdom. And so that is passed then down to Solomon. And then eventually, not directly, to Jeconiah. Now, the problem is, one of David's descendants was very wicked, and Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote this of Jeconiah. Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So there's a curse delivered on Jeconiah. So the question becomes, how did Christ come from Jeconiah if Jeconiah was cursed to be childless? See the conundrum? How does that work? And so one explanation would be, if we're tracing a maternal line, you don't have that problem because you actually short circuit around the Jeconiah problem and you go through David's other son. Make sense? All right. Is it getting foggy out there? All right, we're working on it. So it does have some strengths to that. So perhaps Luke is saying that Jesus was not a blood descendant of Jeconiah. That has some strengths. There's a couple of problems, I think, with this view and understanding. One, Mary just isn't mentioned anywhere in this. And we could say that it was custom to trace the paternity, uh, trace paternal line rather than maternal line. We could say that, and I think that's an answer. But Matthew does. He actually mentions five different women in the genealogy in Matthew. So it wasn't unheard of, and it wasn't impossible to have women mentioned. And so I don't know that that's the right answer. And two, it really doesn't deal with what I think is actually the biggest issue here, And that is Joseph is said to have two fathers, which comes into play in just a moment here. Says this, Luke 3.23, the son, as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the verse we just read, compared to Matthew 1.16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Okay, so remember, they're going opposite directions, but here's what they're saying. Clarity. Luke Joseph's dad is Heli. Matthew, Joseph's dad is Jacob. Now, those aren't the same name. And some people have said, well, maybe they're just, 
Maybe they're just the, you know, people in the Bible sometimes had more than one name. Maybe that's what's going on here. That'd be fine if there weren't a hundred names to deal with. I mean, you just kind of kick it back a generation, and then you got the same problem um, over and over again. So I don't think that actually does us anything. So let's keep going. Paternal or maternal, it's a possibility, and a common possibility, actually. Next, Joseph is the son-in-law. He's the son-in-law. So in the language, there's no clear term like we have for son-in-law. So what Luke really means when he writes this is that it's actually, he, he's actually tracing Mary's lineage again, but it's through, he's the son-in-law of, Mary, of, uh, of Heli. And so they would, that would be what they're saying. There's no clear term for that. This doesn't seem probable to me as they had other ways of communicating son-in-law. And I don't think that one makes a ton of sense to me, but it is a popular opinion that's out there. The last view is this. Joseph had two fathers. Now, some of y'all are really nervous at this point. Is this some sort of modern 2023 reading of the ancient text? Joseph had two fathers. No, there's a couple of different ways that this could have happened. Joseph had two fathers. What I mean by two fathers here is that his lineage is being traced by a legal father and then a biological father, all right? How could that happen? A couple of different ways. So some have made the case that Mary did not have any brothers, and so the inheritance from her family would be passed down to another. And so one is tracing Joseph's lineage, the other, again, is tracing Mary, but it's because he was adopted into the family. Similar to the son-in-law argument, but slightly different. Comes out roughly the same. The second explanation, which I think has a lot of merit to it, is what's called the leveret marriage. Now, this will come across maybe as something completely foreign and maybe hard for us to kind of put our minds around this morning. But I want you to go with me here. The leveret marriage, what this meant is that if there, uh, well, I'll just read you the verses and then we can see how it works. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So this is a simple concept. It's a very foreign concept to us, but it's a very simple concept. If you are a male here this morning, and let's say that you have a brother and your brother is married, and your brother and his wife do not have any male children, if your brother were to happen to die, tragically, you would have a responsibility then, in this time, to take his wife now as your wife. Offspring that you produced, particularly male children, would be considered as carrying on the lineage of your brother, not you. All right? Makes sense, right? I'm not asking if you like it. I'm just asking if it made sense. That's all. Everybody's like looking at me like, I, I'm not, no, uh, not, not proposing anything here. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, okay? So this is how it worked. And that's a possible explanation. In this case, what we have is Jacob, 
who would be Joseph's father, according to Matthew, and Heli, who would be Joseph's father, according to Luke, would probably be half-brothers. They would come from the same mother, not the same father. One of them had lost, had died, and then remarries, and then Joseph is then the product of a leveret marriage. That actually explains what's going on. And so both genealogies then could be tracing Joseph, one through the physical lineage, one through a legal lineage. This isn't unprecedented in the Bible. It actually happens in other places as well. Here's an example, and this one's related to the one that will, we actually, one of the convergence points in the genealogies. Zerubbabel is the son of Padiah, according to 1 Chronicles 3, 17 through 19. But then Zerubbabel is mentioned quite a few other places, actually, in the Old Testament. And he's mentioned as the son of Shiltiel. Well, if you read 1 Chronicles 3, 17 through 19, what you learn is that those guys are brothers, Padiah and Shiltiel. So how is it that Zerubbabel could be both mentioned as the son of Padiah and then also the son of Shiltiel? Leveret marriage actually explains how this could be. So it's not without precedent, and I do think that one's actually particularly relevant um, in our genealogy here, because that is one of the places where those things converge. Okay, we're going to move off of that now. Is anybody happy? (laughs) Just want you to know it's there. A couple of things that, a couple of reasons why I went through that with you. I know it's a little bit detailed, and maybe a little bit, the type of study, maybe you're not not necessarily like super into. I want you, I want to do that for a couple of reasons though. One, you're going to hit at some point in time, somebody's going to tell you that the Bible is hopelessly contradictory. And I just want you to know it's not. All right. It's just not. I I read about this quite a bit and there are some people and you'll find some skeptics. You can go look them up and they'll say, look at these genealogies. They're contradictory. There's no hope that the Christian scripture is actually accurate. And I just want you to know, there's some ways that you can reconcile this that don't cast doubt on the word of God at all. And I really believe in the first century, these guys would have known the context. They would have known these families. Theophilus would have dialed in immediately to what Luke was doing. And although 2,000 years later, it may be fuzzy to us exactly what's happening there, I don't think it was fuzzy then. And they was doing something very intentional, and there's logical explanations for this. So I wanted to do that for that reason. And then the second reason is just to remind you, as we've already been reminded, God works in history. God's active. These are actual people. The fact that you can have a debate about Shealtiel and Zerubbabel and Leveret marriage, these are actual humans that existed and lived, and God is active through those people. So, why a genealogy to confirm God's faithfulness, Christ's credentials, why this genealogy? We've gone through the reasons why Luke did it the way that he did it. Let's talk about why it matters. Why does this actually matter? A couple of days ago, I asked a question on a social media outlet, and I just asked a simple question, this simple question. I said, who are the most important people in the world, in, in world history? that have ever lived? Who are the most important people? And I was really curious what kind of answers I would get to that question. Who are the most important people in the world? Well, my audience happened to be a little bit too Christian-y, so I didn't get the types of responses, you know, maybe I was hoping for. But I wonder what list we would come up to. Just try to subtract out Christian worldview here for a moment. 
And I think Christians just feel this immediate obligation to say, Jesus, right, I, I understand, and yes, he deserves to be on the list. Even secular historians would recognize Jesus as an incredible historical figure. Um, even secular historians would. So he certainly belongs on the list by any measure. But who else would be on that list? Aristotle, Socrates, Newton, Einstein, Edison, maybe more, a little bit more modern, somebody like Winston Churchill, who was instrumental during World War II. I did appreciate one answer I got, and that was for Willis Carrier, who is considered the inventor of the air conditioner. (laughs) We should have National Willis Carrier Day about the fourth week of July around here. And I did look up, just for curiosity, Otto Rawitter. You might know what he did? Invented sliced bread, because obviously that's a significant event in history. We talk about it all the time. However you would answer that question, I don't know. Who are the most important figures in world history for all time? I think you cannot do better than this list right here. David, Abraham, Noah, Adam, and then, of course, Jesus. We could certainly add Moses to this list as well. And the reason I think these are the most important figures in history is these are the people that God entered into covenant with. The whole Bible is built, it's structured around these covenants that God makes with humanity. It's how it starts and it's ultimately how it ends, leading to this new covenant in Christ. So why does this genealogy matter? I just wanna pick these four names and I wanna just give you some very, very, very high points of their life and how Christ now fulfills and ultimately is a better version of what these guys were and how the Lord used them. Luke works in reverse order. So we'll do the same. We'll work back down to down the timeline to Adam. David. We know that David was the king in Israel, second king and the greatest king that Israel ever had. And part of this promise, as we read earlier, was to establish an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom. But David had problems. David actually had big problems. In fact, this may sound like a shocking statement, I'm not sure we'd let David be an elder at the church after some of the things that he did. It's bad, and not just G-rated bad, bad, bad things that David did. And so what we have in all of these guys, very important, very good examples, very significant, but we have a story of a fall, a catastrophic failure to obey God, a catastrophic lack of trust in God. David's family was a little bit of a mess, especially towards the end. Multiple sons tried to kill him, take his kingdom, gets run out of town. He sins horribly with Bathsheba. He takes a census of the people that God didn't authorize, brings a plague on the people, thousands die. But then we have Christ. This was David, the good king. We've read about some bad kings. He was the good king, and he had, yet he had all these problems. What about the better king, King Jesus? 
Matthew 11, 29 and 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's the better new king, establishing a new type of kingdom. Abraham, we see the establishment of a new people. Remember, we're working backwards in history and these stories interrelate very much. We don't have time to explore those today. Jumping back about a thousand years in biblical history here, we know that the land of promise was given, was promised to Abraham. There are three main elements of this promise to Abraham, the land, the descendants, and the blessings. We'll focus on the people, the people that he's creating. Abraham is sort of standing at the top of this before there is Jew or Gentile. There is no Jew or Gentile at that point. And God says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And then it takes a long time. Abraham doubts God's promise. Remember, every one of these, there's a fall narrative. He doubts God's promise, and he goes and has a child by his handmaid, his wife's handmaid, Hagar. And this is not the covenant child, but God honors and protects that child. He sins. He doesn't trust the Lord. They travel place to place multiple times. He lies about the identity of his wife because he was scared that they would kill him and steal his wife. He doesn't trust the Lord at times. He's incredibly influential, incredibly great example in so many ways. But then he's not Jesus. He's not the ultimate one. So these people are created, but it's people based on ethnicity. Christ creates a new community based on their confession of him as Lord. What about Noah? Let's talk about Noah for a moment. Most people know the story of Noah. Noah and the Ark, the Great Flood. I mean, everybody loves Noah and the Ark. We love it in kids' rooms especially, right? The big boat and the animals, and everybody loves seeing that. But we need to remember the violence of the flood as well. Remember to need to remember why the Ark was built. I had a pastor friend one time say that building an Ark, it's sort of like building the World Trade Center. It's a place of disaster. I said, well... Not exactly, because they all died at the World Trade Center. The ark is the way of, of renewal, of salvation. And so they are different. And I think it's right to have pictures of arcs and floods. I don't have any issue with that. But we need to remember the flood was catastrophic. It was violent. It reshaped the earth. There's a lot of overlap between the promises to Adam and then to Noah. It's a restart for humanity. But of course, what happens after Noah gets off the boat? We have, again, he sins with the fruit and he sins in the garden. Again, he's not the redeemer. We see that Noah is referenced by Peter. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. So for those who would say, hey, God's not going to work again. He's not coming back. And they're mocking his return. Hey, Peter, it's been, what, 20 years now and Jesus hasn't come back yet? You still believe that? He says, oh, wait. You remember this thing called the flood. By the same word, the heavens are and earth that now exists are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Just like the ark was a means of salvation from the flood, also Christ now is the means of salvation from coming judgment. 
Don't negate this fact. Don't forget this fact. And then lastly, we see a new humanity is formed. When I see Adam on this list, Adam the son of God, as Luke ends, my mind is drawn towards how Paul used this idea of being in Adam or in Christ. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death came into the world through a person, a representative, and that was Adam. But now, for if because of one man's trespass, that was Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's considered the last Adam, the first Adam who brought sin and death. We have the last Adam, Christ, who brings deliverance. For Paul, your genealogy wasn't really all that important. What was important is, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? That was it, in Adam or in Christ. So that's the big question left for us. Are we in Adam or are we in Christ? How do you know if you're in Christ? Will you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? He is the Savior. You come to a realization of your sin, you repent of your sin, and then you turn, you trust him, and you follow him and commit your life to living as a follower and disciple of Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much for some time that we can spend together, and we thank you for your word, and it's so, it's so intricate and sometimes complex, and yet, Lord, we understand that there's a certain clarity to your word, and we understand that we are recipients now of your truth, and we are to steward this message that we have. Lord, I do pray for those sitting out there today. Maybe there's some who are here this morning and would say, I am in Adam and not ultimately in Christ. Use your word, convince them, show them their need for you by your spirit. Lord, you're kind and good to us. We're grateful for this time that you can give us. Lord, we pray that we would be changed because we've encountered the God of the Bible today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.